when one understands the situation of the company and the possibilities which one can play with, with the type of, uh, of behaviors and leadership figures, then it's easier to make successful appointments. We do know that a lot of CEOs and executive appointments are not successful for a number of reasons. Very often, very successful executives in other companies come on board and they don't deliver or they don't fit. And uh, and we always blame it on the, on the culture or we may blame it on uh, like poor fitting. But in reality, sometimes it's just the wrong appointment because we function well depending on uh, on the context and uh, bringing in some uh, some rational evaluations will basically increase the chance of success. In her book, Conversational Intelligence, Judith Glasser wrote, to get to the next level of greatness depends on the quality of our culture, which depends on the quality of our relationships which depends on the quality of our conversations. Everything happens through conversations. Welcome to Conversations, powered by Quantivos. Welcome to this episode of Conversations. I'm Brian Gorman, your host and a coach here at Quantivos. And today we have two guests. First, we have Thomas Kyle. Thomas is a professor of international management at the University of Zurich. Welcome, Thomas. Thank you for having me. And with Thomas, we have Mariana Zangrillo. Mariana is the chief procurement officer of ID Verdi. ID Verdi is a provider of landscape creation, maintenance, green services, and nature-based solutions in Europe. They are, in fact, located in six countries. They have over 10,000 colleagues and generate $1 billion of revenue, 1 billion euro of revenue every year. Welcome, Mariana. Thank you. Thank you for having me, too. And I give you that background because, as I was saying before we hit record here, I was blown away by the book that Thomas and Marianne have co-authored. The book is The Next Leadership Team, How to Select, Build, and Optimize Your Top Team. And what blew me away is the depth of the research and yet the practicality and wisdom of the content. So my first question really comes from a quote early in the book. You write a striking insight from our research is that there is no single best approach to top leadership teams, but rather several feasible approaches that can lead to success. This is in stark contrast to much of the existing practitioner advice that often touts a single best solution, which is meant to fit all organizations. Having read the book, I know the answer of why that's true, but I'd like to throw that out sort of as a, an, an opening question for our conversation. When we entered the research, we really also thought that we would find a single solution that we could propose to, to everybody that could uh, work in all organizations and that could work with all kinds of leaders. 
But uh, what we found out in our conversations with CEOs and uh, top executives was very fast that uh, um, they have their very personal approach uh, to how they do things. And they operate in companies that are very, very different from each other, that are uh, having different needs uh, and uh, um, therefore require different types of teams. And uh, we noticed that those leaders that succeed actually combine what they feel personally comfortable with, uh, on the other hand, with uh, what the organization needs. And uh, only that uh, together actually really leads to success in our viewpoint. And, uh, and uh, if I may add, um, the, what we're doing, it to some extent, uh, build on, you could say, on situational leadership. So we do know that uh, leadership always depends on the situation of what you need to do, what you can do. But uh, what, what we try to do with our research is to understand what are the, the rational elements, what are the building blocks of different situations that one can learn from and apply to another situation. So uh, it's not just about, okay, the situation is different. The big thing is, what do we do about it? And can we learn from the different situations? So we try to build, to simplify and create some uh, structures so that whoever basically reads the books in the end, they not just say, oh, wow, these people did, did a great job in that company, but also how can I learn from that and apply it to my specific case? So bringing rationality into the seeking process, so then there can be a positive outcome, basically, for anyone who reads the book. So there's always some something for someone to learn from and apply to their own situation. Absolutely. And again, you talk about, quote, simplifying. And I really was impressed by the, the different models, if you will, that you created. And Thomas, you referenced one of those which appears very early in the book, which is the different approaches to leadership teams. And your research identified three basic leadership team models, if you will, understanding that it's, it's more of a continuum than a A, B, or C. But you talk about the team of stars, you talk about the stretch team, and you talk about the synergistic team. What do you mean by those different terms? We really think about this uh, along the lines of what is the basic principle that you run your team with. If you take the team of stars, you have individualists, you have uh, people that are very ambitious, very competition-oriented, maybe not uh, the ideal cooperative players, but uh, really going after their business, their business's success. And you form a leadership team that uh, leverages that strength, that leverages that raw energy, that raw ambition. Everybody has their own area of uh, um, responsibility. Everybody goes after their own business. And you basically only align where it is necessary. That's a team where you want to have individualistic stars uh, um, that then drive the show. And the exact opposite is when we are um, really leveraging cooperation, when you have uh, synergy among people, when problems are solved together, when you have an integrated uh, company that needs uh, different functions to work together, that needs uh, uh, possibly different geographies to work together, and uh, where uh, the individual is not really in the limelight anymore, but it's really the organization and the team that needs to shine. And then you need very different people. You need people that can cooperate, people that can really work together, that can take their ego back and uh, 
um, put the organization ahead of their own business, their own ego. And then you have as the third, as, uh, as you mentioned, the stretch team that tries to leverage both of these forces. Maybe not in its full raw form as uh, in this team of stars or synergistic team, but uh, that tries to, in some instances, draw on competition, in other instances, draw uh, on collaboration. Because the complexity is high, because you need to achieve both of these two things in many modern businesses. And that requires, of course, people that uh, uh, have both of these skills and also can uh, um, use them when it is opportune, when it is the right moment, that do not compete when they need collaboration, that do not uh, um, step back and uh, are um, too shy when they really need to speak up for their business, which is, of course, often the most difficult thing to do. And of course, this is a little bit of, uh, as, as we said, a little bit of a simplification, which uh, is uh, in the end uh, the strength of the book, because it puts uh, complex situations and, uh, and situations which are difficult to understand into a relatively simple setting that is ultimately actionable. And we also like to say that uh, our books are a little bit of, a, of a, could be a little bit of a guidance to both CEO and leadership appointments. Um, the, the first book, The Next CEO, also identified the type of mandates that need to be considered when appointing the CEO, which ultimately can be considered also when appointing the, the leadership team. So when one understands the situation of the company and the possibilities which one can play with, with the type of, uh, of behaviors and leadership figures, then it's easier to make successful appointments. We do know that a lot of CEOs and executive appointments are not successful. For a number of reasons, very often very successful executives in other companies come on board and they don't deliver or they don't fit. And uh, and we always blame it on the, on the culture or we may blame it on um, like poor fitting. But in reality, sometimes it's just the wrong appointment because we function well depending on uh, on the context and uh, bringing in some, uh, some rational evaluations we basically increase the chance of success. And that's also the feedback that we got from a number of executives who, who read the books. And uh, and when they were about to make appointments or when they had to make decisions about appointment, um, I cannot tell the name for confidentiality reasons, but uh, a CEO of a very well-known organization, um, we, we actually sent him our book um, when he was uh, appointed or when the announcement was made. And, uh, and then he basically came back to us and said, you know, reading this book, for me, it was better than than any advisory project that I could have had with uh, with one of you know the big firms because it was very easy for me to, to think what I had to pay attention to in a neutral way and and actually uh, maybe it's a coincidence but uh, but what's happening now is that uh, he made a very successful story um, in his transformation and uh, the company has made really incredible results so. Uh, we we hear that uh, it, it really works that uh, advice really works. Again, I, I really appreciate the simplicity of the structure for dealing with a lot of complexity. And you spend a lot of time looking at how each of these teams fit not only different types of organizations, but different sets of organizational challenge. As I'm listening to you, and as I was reading the book, actually, I was thinking about our own leadership team at Quantibos. We are definitely a synergistic team. We had 14 leaders together for three days for a quarterly strategy retreat last week. And I don't think any one of us would do well if we were selected to be on a team of stars. 
because there was just no ego in the room. Everybody was willing to bring their best ideas and then to support the growth of those ideas with the contributions of others. So finding that fit, matching the company type with the leadership approach with the challenges, you really give a lot of insight there. How do you select team members to fit the kind of team that you need? It's probably the most difficult task of uh, any board for a CEO and any CEO and the board together for their team. Uh, what we do recommend is always to start from the mandate, which is the reason why I referred to the, the next CEO book, which is the first one that we wrote. So always starting from the mandate, depending on how much you need to sustain an existing strategy or if you need to, to run a transformation or turn around if the company is bleeding money. So depending on what you have at hand, you will need to you will need to start from 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 that concept and uh, and then we always tell it's a good idea to to look at internal candidates and external candidates and run a benchmark of course assumes that you do have a good bench of internal candidates which then we go into different topic the importance of succession management and uh, and then depending on how much you need to change the strategy or how much you want to retain then you would look more into an external. So if you need to change, it's better to look elsewhere. If you need to continue an existing strategy, it's, it's, advisable, it's advisable for internal appointments. And that's the very first thing, the very first thing that one we, we would recommend to, to, to consider. Uh, then one that has been, has been assessed, uh, it is important to understand the fitting. And then we go back into the question of what kind of personalities you have. For example, you mentioned example that she will not definitely be a team of stars. Um, I would like to make a, a clarification there. When we are looking at the personalities, for example, uh, we, we are used to the concept that executives are sharks, which is uh, not really a compliment, even if the past people thought that it was a compliment. Um, we, we, we say that any type of behavior, any type of personality can function if... Uh, treated in the right way if the energy is channeled in the right way. So a team of shark, it's a negative concept. But if you elevate and make them work in the right way, then we have a team of stars. The same thing when we are looking at the petting zoo is not a compliment. Working nicely together is not a compliment. While elevating it to the synergistic team is a compliment because you basically bring um, any kind of personality, any kind of team from what is a negative connotation into a performing team. So when you are selecting the right people for your for your organization, you look at the mandate, you perhaps look at the type of business. We typically say, is it a single business company? And then maybe a synergistic teams work better with personalities which fit better the team. If you have a highly diversified organization, whether it's geographies, whether it's different regions and many businesses, then you would more look more for stronger personalities, so more team of stars. Um, examples that we brought there in the books on are like from the investment banking. Uh, we had an interesting conversation with Olsim, also was looking into into uh, as a highly diversified organization, and then then you have a team of stars there. Netflix is also that kind of setup. And then when you're looking at complex organization, then typically you look at the stretch teams that uh, I, I should say that, but I tend to say that uh, for complex organization, you need people who are uh, have superior competencies, which can operate both in a synergistic way and in a team of star setup. 
And then you have a number of organizations there like the uh, PNG and Nestle and, and a lot of organizations of that kind. So the considerations are a little bit different, the mandate, the type of business, and then you see what kind of personality can fit there. And uh, and of course, one cannot 100% have it right, but, but we do believe that with these different elements, the chance to get it right is a bit higher than it would be without this rational assessment. I mean, there is there's the analytical part, but of course, uh, there is also uh, still the, the individual part, because um, in the end of the day, um, as a leader, you need to feel also comfortable with uh, the, the type of people, with the approach that you're working with. So um, also that part you need to balance. Um, so it's, it's very easy to say it's just an analytical exercise. Uh, and that's obviously what we are largely trying to push. But uh, uh, you need to be mindful of it that uh, not, not every approach and not every type of team works also uh, with with every leader at the top, so so that's something that we really also need to to balance with this more analytical part, and, and you need to look at both of these sides. But if you are on the extreme of that, and you're just doing what you personally like, what uh, is your personal uh, best persona, it doesn't work. Then we see disasters where uh, where people come in. Uh, you know, Elon Musk is a nice example where he built things. Uh, uh, according to his own persona, and it works uh, when people can self-select into it. When he came into Twitter X, uh, um, he destroyed the company basically um, by following his persona. So it's that's why you need both of these things at the same time. I think Thomas, you raised there a very interesting challenge, which is leaders coming in with the mandate to change the strategy to change the culture to make some significant, create some significant level of disruption for the betterment of, of the organization in the future. How do you deal with the existing leadership team when you're in those kinds of situations? I mean, the reality is uh, when a leader gets brought into an organization with a, with a change mandate, when it's really a transformation, when it's really a turnaround, um, the expectation is that the leadership team will at least in part change. We've had instances where leaders changed the complete leadership team, um, where they would say, look, this team was great in an earlier time, but now we need something completely different. They are not fit for this situation, not because they are not good people or not good leaders, but because the, the situation is so different. Um, so you see that. I mean, this is, of course, an extreme case, but you see changes in the leadership team. But I think what is important and what we see is uh, good uh, uh, leaders do is that they are very structured about uh, in uh, analyzing um, the existing team, in being mindful what they will need for the mandate, and, uh, and then making uh, selective changes, um, getting people out that are toxic, getting people out that are resisting the change, uh, getting people out that do not fit competence-wise, uh, but at the same time, to the extent possible, also um, keeping uh, internal uh, leaders inside because it's, of course, the more you bring in people from outside, the higher is the risk that you have some kind of a rejection uh, of the organization that people say, hey, this is now only people from outside. Uh, uh, I have no place in this organization anymore. And then you lose the good people, which is not good uh, for the organization either. I think you raised an important point there that I just want to highlight quickly. So often when these changes are announced, the 
whether explicit or implicit message is this organization has done something wrong. And so one of the messages that I, I always work to communicate and work with leaders to get them to communicate is we are in this position of being able to make the change because we've done lots of things right up to this point. And what we've done to get us here is not going to take us to where we want to go next. What happens when your leadership team just ain't working? When things aren't working at all, you, you have to take radical interventions. Um, you, you have to see if it's uh, individuals, if it's the whole team, you have to really radically rethink. Um, rethink the way you're working, uh, rethink uh, um, how can you align that with uh, what you need to accomplish. Um, and uh, uh, that, uh, that often has to do more with uh, how you work uh, than necessarily the individuals. Only. I mean, the individuals we already talked about is a starting point, but uh, even when you change individuals, uh, um, it's, it has often to do with the way you're working. If you're focusing, for instance, too much on, on the individual businesses uh, uh, and you wonder why you're not achieving synergies across the businesses, for instance, these are how you're working as a team together, not necessarily uh, a question of, uh, of the leaders in, in question. I think there is also an element of uh, how quickly one notices that the team is not working. So sometimes we we look at the numbers and uh, it looks like everything is great. And uh, then we may miss an opportunity to really run uh, a proper evaluation of the team. Uh, I, I like to say that numbers are um, really lagging indicators. They're not leading indicators. And unfortunately, most companies are running a numerical way with a strong financial attention, which is understandable you know, because these people are there to, you know, to, to make money for someone, for some of the shareholders. But um, sometimes it's important to catch early sign of toxicity, for example. And, uh, and I do believe that it's very important to uh, take early actions, uh, whether it's, um, you know, kind of performance review, whether it's informal conversations, and, uh, and then eventually lead to, to early dismissals. So uh, we, we unfortunately see the dismissals or the, or the changes at that level happening only when, when the numbers are not happening and sometimes a lot of disagreements and uh, poor behaviors are tolerated. But then over time, that creates uh, a lot of issues you know, at all levels of the organization. And then over time, it becomes much more complicated to fix it. And then you have talent leakage, you have uh, internal disagreements, and then maybe you have compliances and all kinds of situations which, which end up happening. So uh, when the team is not working, uh, we, we tend to think it's when the numbers are not working. But actually, I think when the numbers are not working, it's typically very late. And, uh, and sometimes we see that numbers may still be working, but the, the culture is toxic, people are not happy. So shareholders are making money anyways, but uh, but people are not happy to work in certain organizations. So uh, it's, a, it's a tricky question to answer uh, because it depends very much on the, I think on the personal view and, and values of the people which are assessing a good leadership team. One of the topics that you raised in an earlier email to me was around the importance of diversity in leadership teams and why diversity is so difficult to manage. So clearly here in, in the United States and, and, and U.S.-based companies, 
topics of diversity, inclusion, belonging, equity have, have really become very high in terms of attention. And then given our political landscape, how you deal with them has become really um, a, a topic of a lot of reflection and question. So first of all, why is diversity so important for leadership teams? I mean, we, we have literally at this point uh, uh, decades of research that show that uh, diverse teams make better decisions. They are processing information um, more completely. They consider more options. Uh, they discuss these options in more depth uh, and uh, therefore, in the end, uh, typically uh, lead to better performance. And that is the problem. It takes substantively more energy because what we just say is we are t considering more options, we are discussing them in more depth, means um, that we will have uh, very different viewpoints, we will have different opinions, we will have different perspectives that need to be reconciled. And that is, of course, not, not a process that is without pain. Um, in fact, uh, running diverse teams, is that's why we think they are much harder to do because what seems great when you think of it, oh, now we will have this different perspective. Once you need to make an important decision, this different perspective will mean that you will have a possibly a, a very big fight over an issue because you come from very different uh, angles, from very different starting points, and it requires... Uh, patience, energy, and most importantly, also a lot of goodwill um, then to come to, to the decision. If you work through that, the outcome is great. But uh, what we see very often in organizations is that the, the CEO or an executive that wants to build this team brings in these people, but doesn't take the uh, energy to actually get everybody on board and give them the time to actually be deeply integrated. And then you have these fragmented teams where people are on the periphery, where they are uh, brought in because it looks good, but it doesn't have the impact. In fact, uh, uh, a well-known CEO told us, uh, we brought in diversity, but, they, but when we did it, we did not realize what it really meant, and then we couldn't cope with it. So... Uh, it's it's and, and by the way, when we talk about diversity, clearly we don't mean just gender. We mean you know different cultures, different backgrounds, even people with different education. And uh, what people say gets interpreted in very different ways, and uh, and it's not always interpreted in the right way. And it, managing diversity is just complicated because by nature we get along better with people who are more similar to us. And uh, and as soon as uh, someone speaks in a different way, reacts in a different ways independently of, 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 the, of what constitutes the diversity, then it's very easy to, to exclude. It's the same in schools with children. We know that bullying is a, is a very common, um, common activity. We, we hear it very often uh, also among our children. And, uh, and it's, it's simply because people do not really either understand or appreciate and embrace diversity. And that happens as well. That was also in the executive teams. I mean, things are getting much better. Uh, we do see that a lot of legislations are forced in diversity and, uh, and executive teams are forced to learn what that actually means and deal with it somehow. But what Thomas said that very often diverse people tend to remain in the periphery and not really in for really properly integrated. Uh, we do see that it's still quite right. We actually do hear from a lot of the diverse executives that inter we interview that they may have a good job, they may have good titles, they may have good compensation. But very often, they do not really fit properly integrated. The cases where we hear that I am really integrated, 
it's actually quite still quite rare. I actually recognize the truth behind what you're saying just from my experience with organizations that have run organizational network analysis looking at aspects of, of diversity. And uh, I, re I remember one I saw where they were very proud, and, and this was a couple decades ago, but they were very proud of having broken the glass ceiling with a number of women executives. And yet when you looked at the interaction at the executive level, not only were the male executives actively interacting with the male executives and not the female executives, but the female executives weren't even interacting with one another. So the challenge of that inclusion and the value of it are, are both, I think, very prevalent. To, to build on something that Thomas said, and just very briefly, I don't remember the book. It was decades ago, again, that I read this, but it was a book um, on leadership and, and tying different aspects of leadership to different aspects of science. And in talking about diversity, they used the example of a palm tree and an oak tree and said that the cellular structure of a palm tree is very simple. It replicates and grows very quickly. The cellular structure of an oak tree is very complex. It takes a long time to grow. And yet, in times of adversity, in times of storm, which has the strength? The one with the diversity, the one with the different ideas, different ways of thinking, different perspectives on the same challenge. You know, I, I really want to acknowledge the, the wisdom that you're bringing to this topic as well. As challenging as it is, it's important. It's critical. Especially today as we are facing need for resilience. You know, as we are talking multi-crisis, we need to reinvent our organizations. You cannot do this when you have the homogeneous organization that only needs one way of doing things. Absolutely. Thank you. I think we could talk for hours. Unfortunately, I don't think we'd maintain our listenership. So before we end this particular conversation, any last thoughts that each of you would like to share? I think uh, what, what I always tell, especially people I hired new, um, embrace everything which comes your way. Fighting back is never a good, good, good way to deal with the dif different, challenging situations, new opportunities. Uh, embracing and then dealing as you go, it's, uh, it's, it's always the best way. Um, I, I experienced myself uh, considerable clashes in my early career days, and, uh, and I think that nobody ever won, not me, not my, my peer colleagues and stakeholders. So no clashes, embrace, deal with what you get. We are human. We are allowed to get to be disappointed, to be occasionally angry, but that should not prevent us from keeping on, keeping on going and maintaining the relationships and, and dealing with what life throws at us. I will uh, share a moment in thought. We've talked a lot about the challenges and, uh, and the difficulties of building leadership teams. I think it's important to acknowledge that this is probably the wonder, number one lever that any a senior executive or CEO has uh, to really drive what they want to do. So uh, spending time and energy on that is really time well spent. Uh, 
um, as we see in all of our conversations. So, so putting effort into building a top-notch leadership team is effort well spent. Thomas Kyle, Mariana Zingrillo, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much.